Welcome to a special Christmas Eve edition of the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. Now, let's head over to Pastor Tim as he brings us a message on this Christmas Eve. I haven't met you. My name is Tim, and uh, I... Merry Christmas! Ish, yeah, Merry Christmas-ish. Uh, we're almost there, almost there. We are, uh, we're counting down the hours, right? Like, I remember as a kid, this moment, um, we're, we're, we will light the Advent wreath in just a moment, and I remember the weeks leading up to Christmas, uh, counting down the candles and kind of the growing anticipation, the growing excitement. Um, kids, are you there? Are you ready for this already? Yeah. Christmas? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, but we, got, we have a sermon. I uh, talked to a couple of college guys before, and they begged me for a full-length sermon. So <laughs> I was planning to go short, but I'm excited for what we get to look at today. Um, the, the, if you have a Bible, we'll be in Matthew 2. I want to tell you a Christmas story this morning. It's, it's not one of the, the famous Christmas stories. Um, it's, it's not a Christmas story that we tell a lot on Christmas Eve, um, so you, know, you got your, your really famous Christmas Eve stories, the, the shepherds in the field keeping watch over their flocks, the story of uh, baby Jesus swaddled and placed in a manger. That's a famous story. Uh, the, the, um, the angels declaring glory to God in the highest. That's a famous story. Uh, the magi presenting the, the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh. That's a famous story. Um, there is another story. Uh, another Christmas story, uh, it's kind of like a lost Christmas story. It doesn't get read a lot at Christmas time, especially in a Christmas Eve service. I think you'll see why in a moment. It, there, are, there are like the, the fuzzy Christmas sweater, Harry Connick Jr. or Michael Buble or Bieber, I heard, is now the new Christmas album of the year. Uh, put you, uh, Mariah Carey, like whatever. You put the, 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 that music on your speakers. You put on the warm Comfy Christmas clothes, you get the hot chocolate, and you think about the, the, the traditional Christmas stories, the shepherds and the magi and baby Jesus. Uh, but there is another Christmas story that is far less popular, um, far less read. Now, why would we read this story uh, today? Here's, here's my reasoning. Um, first, we made a commitment together that over the course of 2022, we are going to uh, go line by line through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Matthew is one of four author- authoritative accounts of Jesus' life. And, uh, and so we've been looking at the Gospel of Matthew. We started it a few weeks ago, and we're going to spend all of 2022 in Matthew. Um, and it just so happens that we left off and we're at this story. And so one of the reasons we're going to look at this story is... We made a commitment, and this is where we are. Uh, but the other reason is, honestly, um, the more I've kind of dug into the story, I find this one really fascinating. It's, a, it's really, if you can get past the obvious, like, okay, that's a hard story. This is a fascinating little story. Um, so, but, uh, so I'm going to do my best. I know we got a lot of kids in the room. I'm going to do my best to tell the story. We're going to read it straight. Then we'll do our best to not scare the kids with the story. Now you're nervous. What's the story? All right, here we go. Matthew 2, verse 13. Here's the story. 
When they had gone, uh, the they there, obviously we're dropping in the middle of a larger story. Uh, the they there are the magi, the, the wise men from the east. You bring the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh. So um, they are warned in a dream not to go back to King Herod, but to go another route home. Um, and uh, the reasoning, as we'll see, verse 13, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and he left it for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave order to kill all the boys in Beth... Merry Christmas. Kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and younger, uh, in, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. The voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. There you go. That's the lost Christmas story. That's the one that uh, you may tell it in the weeks leading up to Christmas, maybe right after Christmas, but we don't tend to, it's not the one we tell on Christmas Eve or on Christmas morning. Um, my guess is there's two camps in the room right now. There, camp one, you, it's not the most obscure story. You've heard this story before. And so you remember this story and you say, yeah, that's the story of the time when Herod tried to kill all the baby boys. That's camp one. Camp two, you've not heard this story before. And you're hearing the story and thinking, wait a minute, the king of the nation put a hit out on all of the baby boys? Like this Christmas story includes mass attempted genocide? Like what is what is the story? And uh, then you get the weirdness of it all. It is a weird story, isn't it? You got to ask the question, why does the king of the nation want to kill all the baby boys? Why is, why is he so paranoid about a baby? Like, why is Herod, you ever think that? You read the story and you're like, okay, yeah, that's the story. And then you got connections back to the Old Testament. And there's, but, like, but why? Why is Herod, the king, so worried about baby Jesus. Now you say, well, that's, he's Jesus and he's gonna, he's gonna be Jesus. But does he know that? Why is he scared of baby Jesus? What, what did the Magi say that got him so worried about this baby who was born and placed in a manger to a couple of teenagers? Like, why is he so paranoid? Why, why does he wanna kill all the baby boys? Now, that's like a thread, Okay. Um, if you've been with us at all, you've known that like, to ask the good questions leads you to good answers. And so let's take that thread and let's try to pull it a bit like, an, like a cheap sweater and see what unravels um, in the story. So why, here's the question that we're driving uh, today. Why would Herod want to rid the world of the babies? This is especially, especially uh, a relevant question considering who Herod the Great is. Let me just give you, so we'll try to keep things as buttoned up as we can and as short as we can. You got your kids here, but um, let me give you the three things about Herod the Great, uh, at least my, my, my three favorite accomplishments of Herod the Great. There are many, uh, but one thing to know about Herod um, is he was referred to as Herod the Great for a reason. Herod the Great, when you, uh, when you go to Israel, someday we'll all go at to Israel together. But when you go to Israel, um, one thing you're going to see is Herod the Great's legacy is all over the land. To this day, Herod's, Herod's legacy is everywhere. Herod was the master builder, and uh, Herod had a special way of building. Um, 
I'll try not to ruin too much for those who are coming, but Herod had a special technique, and you see his masterwork everywhere. Here's my three favorite accomplishments of Herod the Great. Accomplishment number one, the temple. The temple. Uh, the first temple uh, Solomon built, uh, King Solomon built the temple. It was destroyed by the Babylonians. Herod the Great comes along, and he decides he's not just going to rebuild the temple. He is going to put the temple on like steroids, and so he decides to build one of the most stunning feats in archaeology or, or in, in architecture um, ever. Just an absolute, all that remains to this day, uh, so in 70 AD, the Romans came in and they uh, wiped out the Jewish people. And so all that remains of the temple is a, west, a portion of the Western Wall and the temple, the temple Mount, like the platform that the temple stood on. Just the Temple Mount is awe-inspiring. Uh, just the Temple Mount, let me give you some stats on the mount. It's made up, the retaining wall is made up of two million stones. These stones were cut from a quarry three miles away. Herod did not want the sound of hammer or chisel in the city. So three miles away, he has these two million stones cut and then somehow drug up a mountain to be placed. Now, why that's stunning is the stones fit perfectly perfectly. Uh, you go to the Western Wall today and you will see people tuck little pieces of prayers into, in between the stones. Um, but they're so tight that you can barely like wedge them in there. The stones fit perfectly. The other reason it's impressive is uh, the size of the stones. Not too long ago, we discovered these ancient tunnels, these rabbinic tunnels underground. And so the stones that are under the earth that no one would have seen. Even those stones are impressive. Let me give you the dimensions. Uh, one stone is 10 feet 6 inches thick, 10, or, or uh, wide, 10 feet 6 inches thick, and 51, or high, and 51 and a half feet long. So 10 by 6, 10 by 6, 51 inches long. Think about that. Stunning. Uh, the, the weight of just one brick is 650 metric tons. That's the, I, I don't, that number means nothing to me. It may, probably means nothing to you. To put it in scale, the largest stone at Stonehenge is 60 metric tons. 650 metric tons. We look at Stonehenge and people are like, well, I don't know how that could have happened. It must have been aliens. Herod did 10 times the size in his stones. To this day, the smartest minds have no idea how he did it. They have no idea how he got those stones up that mountain to be placed at the retaining wall. That's my favorite feature, one of my favorite features. Second uh, favorite feature of Herod, thing he built. Uh, Herod wanted a fortress. He's a bit paranoid. Um, he wanted a fortress halfway between his hometown of Edom and halfway to Jerusalem. So he chose an area in the desert where he was going to build a fortress. He wanted his fortress in a defendable area. And, uh, and you know that a defendable area needs to be high. The higher the area, the higher the mountain, the easier it is to defend your home base. So he wanted his fortress built on top of a mountain. The problem, there were no mountains. So Herod the Great decided that he wanted his Herodian built on a mountain. So he decided to move a mountain and build his fortress on a mountain. By the way, this mountain overlooks Bethlehem. Just, it's, Bethlehem's literally in the shadow of this man-made mountain. This mountain you can see from another mountain called the Mount of Olives. And uh, that mountain is relevant because Jesus is walking with his disciples and he says to his disciples, 
if you have faith like that of a mustard seed, you can say to the mountain, go to the sea and it will. What Herod did by force, you can do by faith. That's the second feature that I find really interesting. Here's the third of the impressive things Herod built is a city of Caesarea. Maybe this is number one. Caesarea is, uh, anybody been to Caesarea? Okay, handful of you. Uh, Caesarea is stunning. Uh, Caesarea is a port city. There, they already had a port city, but it was north away in a city called Joppa. Um, so there was already a port city, but Herod wanted one that was more convenient. Uh, he wanted to uh, cement travel with Rome. So he built a city in Caesarea, but the hard part was it's a port city and there's no natural bay to put the port in. So he decides that if you take the, uh, a certain kind of stone that's in the Galilee region, you could grind it down to a powder and you could essentially create cement. So he builds a port city. Um, again, to this day, people are in awe of what he did to build Caesarea. But in addition to this, he wanted it to look like a Roman city. So he built a theater he built a hippodrome, um, a long kind of arena. He built uh, a massive, massive mansion, a palace. It's where Paul was imprisoned later in his life. Um, but just a stunning city. So stunning that Caesar Augustus, the, the head of Rome, Caesar Augustus decides this city is so impressive that we're going to hold the Olympics here. So he decides to hold the Olympics. But Herod, Herod gets declared the president of the Olympics. Herod, though, has recognized that the Olympics at the time have a problem. No one's showing up. Why is no one showing up? Because the athletes aren't showing up. Why aren't the athletes showing up? Because everyone knows there's one great athlete, and that great athlete comes, and they win all the, they win all the prizes. And so why would we all send our athletes if it's just going to be one person who wins? And so Herod the Great has an idea. If we want people to show up, we need more people winning. Herod's idea is to create a second and third place medal. To this day, we still give out bronze and silver. This is Herod the Great. Raising the question, and by the way, you could keep going. Masada is a fortress in the middle of a desert. He figures out how to channel the water, the rainwater in a desert. It rains like once a year. How to channel it to build a steam room, a freshwater pool. Stunning stuff. Some have argued that he's the wealthiest man who's ever lived. I controlled the spice route. Why is Herod threatened by a baby? Is Matthew just making this up because he's trying to sell the Jesus story? Why is Herod the Great threatened by a baby? Is this story actually true or is it just like myth that has grown over the years and now we tell the story because it honors Jesus? Or is Matthew actually serious that, that Herod the Great is threatened by why is Herod Threatened by a baby. Now, to, to pull the thread of that a bit. Now, Herod's paranoid, by the way. Um, I had a whole bit on, on the paranoia of Herod, but we have kids in the room. So um, the, uh, the best way I can describe Herod is with three words. Stink, stank. I was going to say mean, but uh, stunk too. Um, bad dude, bad, bad dude. Uh, we could go for a long time at the level of paranoia that Herod had. But my question is, why does Herod want to, why is he threatened by a baby? Now, when you begin pulling that thread, eventually you bump into a story. Here's the story. The story is found in Genesis 25. If you have your Bible and want to look there, you can. Otherwise, make a mental note. Uh, Genesis 25 is the story of two brothers, Jacob and his twin brother Esau. 
Jacob and Esau. Now, uh, the story of Jacob and Esau is contentious from the beginning. Even in the womb, these two brothers are like, are fighting it out. Let me read you. I see the laughs. Twins. <laughs> Even in the womb. Listen to the story. Uh, verse 21 of Genesis 25. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childish. Child, not childish. Childless. Um, <laughs> A little bit childish. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebecca, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Do you see what's going on here? These two boys are more than just two boys. They're going to become two nations eventually. And these two nations are going to be at odds with each other. Story continues. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up. And Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. I, by the way, this is like an ancient way of saying, Jacob is a mama's boy. Um, Jacob likes to cook. He likes to stay with the tents. Esau is a man's man. Drives a Silverado. Smells like Axe body spray. That's Esau. <laughs> likes to hunt. Kills some stuff. Right. Verse 28, Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. And then this line, that is why he was also called Edom. Now, um, if you're taking notes, that word Edom, key detail. It is the thread that if you pull that thread, makes sense of the Matthew story of Herod the Great. Edom. Esau will represent a group of people who will come to be known as Edom. Jacob will later have his name changed to Israel. He will come, on, he'll, he will come to represent a nation known as Israel. Edom and Israel will be at odds with each other. Now, if you pull the thread, a couple hundred years later, we find the writings uh, in the book of Numbers. Uh, there is a prophecy in the book of Numbers 24. Numbers 24, listen to these words. Verse 17. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. Edom will be conquered, but Israel will grow strong. So as time progresses, Edom becomes a powerful nation. Um, Edom controls the spice route. Edom, Edom uh, to, the, to this day, like the ruins of Edom are pretty impressive. Edom was wealthy. Edom was powerful. And Israel was constantly being conquered. And yet the, the author of Numbers says, a time is coming in which the roles will reverse. Pull the thread. The prophets in your Old Testament will double down on that. Because as time progresses, Israel looks weaker and weaker and weaker, and Edom looks stronger and stronger and stronger. But the prophets say, give it time. Here's, let me just read you a handful of the prophets. Like they like double down. This is prophet Jeremiah. Concerning Edom, he says, I will punish him. The prophet Ezekiel. I will stretch out my hand against Edom and kill both man and beast. The prophet Joel. Edom will become a desert waste. The prophet Amos. 
For three sins of Edom, even for four, I will not relent. The prophet Malachi. Uh, Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may rebuild, but I will demolish. You get a sense of how the prophets are talking about Edom. They may look strong. They may look powerful. But a time is coming. They're going down. Uh, Obadiah, the prophet Obadiah, he writes an entire prophecy just about Edom. Let me just read you a little bit of Obadiah. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You'll be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Moving ahead a little bit. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. Verse 17. But on Mount Zion, another name for Jerusalem, you will be, deliver, will be deliverance. It will be a holy, and Jacob will possess its inheritance. And then the epic climax, verse 21. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Obadiah predicts that there's a new kingdom coming, and he doesn't refer to this new kingdom as the kingdom of Israel. He, he refers to the new kingdom as the kingdom of the Lord or the kingdom of God, which is exactly what Jesus and his ministry will talk again and again and again about. Now, back to our question. Why is Herod threatened by a baby? Herod, we know, uh, according to the historian Josephus, Josephus writes, and he refers again and again to Herod as Herod the Idumean. Herod the Idumean. Idumea is a Greek translation of a Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is Edom. Herod is an Edomite. Why is Herod so worried about a baby? I think Herod knows the prophecies. Maybe especially this prophecy of uh, Numbers 24. The Magi come. And remember what the Magi say to, to King Herod. We saw a star. Where's the king? I wonder if Herod remembers this, these words of Numbers 24. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter. Who carries a scepter? A scepter will rise out of Israel. Edom will be conquered, but Israel will grow strong. And so on the scene comes Jesus, a king, declared to be a king by the Magi. They saw his star. And in that moment, Herod the Great says, I've heard enough. Stomp them out. If you can't find him, take care of all of them. Uh, Mary and Joseph smuggle away baby Jesus. They leave. They hide out for a while. They finally come back. Um, but that's the story. Now, why does Matthew tell this odd, odd Christmas story? It's not the warm, fuzzy story. It's not the put on the Bieber Christmas kind of story. Why this odd story? Um, Matthew was living in a world in which evil felt like it was winning. If you lived in Herod's world, evil was winning. Abuse was winning. The, the abuse of power was winning. If you lived in Herod's world, uh, the Grinch was winning. 
Um, the, like if you lived in Herod's world, things looked hopeless. And uh, the first thing that Matthew wants you to know to a group of people who feel hopeless is that this baby Jesus has come to restore hope. A couple weeks ago, we lit the hope candle. Uh, in churches and amongst Christians all over our world, um, throughout the season of Lent, we talked about hope. Some of us need to be reminded that hope is possible. Some of you have uh, had, had a year. Some of you, you um, said goodbye to a loved one this year. Some of you, Christmas will be different this year because of what happened. Um, and we need to be reminded that this is not the end. So we light the candle of hope that in the midst of a world in which it looked as though Herod won the day, a baby was being born. Um, and then uh, the second week of Advent, we lit the candle of peace. Herod's, uh, Herod's way came at the end of a sword. Uh, and I would say in our world today, many of us need to be reminded that uh, peace still does win the day. Um, for those of us who um, have... Uh, so I, I listened to a handful of podcasts, and a couple of the podcasts I listened to are doing their year in review. And um, if you, when you're living in the moment, like it's hard to remember, like, like you can get caught up in all the things that happened over the course of a year. But 2021 was a year with a lot of, um, a lot of violence. And for many of us, this Christmas, we need to be reminded that the Prince of Peace is bigger than the violence. Uh, then we lit the candle of joy. We live in a world that does entertainment really well, right? Like, we're great at entertainment, but what we crave is joy. One of my favorite moments on Christmas um, always is watching, if you, if you have the blessing of having kids in your family, watching kids open Christmas presents, because kids don't, as adults, we learn how to fake it, right? Like, oh, yay, underwear, I needed underwear, awesome, thank you. Like, we learn how to fake it, like, we can learn, we're great actors, but, but kids don't fake it. Kids, like, you look at their face when they open presents, and whatever is on their face is what they're feeling in that moment. Um, we, like, joy, like, Christmas is a time to remember that, like, joy in a world that's filled with entertainment, but people are more bored and more joyless than ever, that joy is still possible. And then, uh, we lit the candle of love and faith on Sunday. Um, for all of us who, over the last year, it's, um, it feels like people that we love have put us in a box, have put a label on us. And it's like, no matter what we do, it's like we can't get out of the box. If you've been in that spot, if you feel like no matter um, what you do, what you say, or how you think, somebody that you love thinks that you're ignorant or dumb or uneducated, um, we need to be reminded that love at the end of the day still wins the day. And then this morning, as we count down to Christmas, we light the Christ candle. Everyone in our world will agree that those things are necessary, right? Love, joy, hope, all those things are necessary. Um, we've tried the other ways to get there. We've tried technology We've tried getting there by buying more stuff. Uh, I am more convinced than ever that what our world absolutely is in dire need of, especially this Christmas, is to be reminded that it's only through Christ that the other things come. Now, at least at the full level. 
We live in a world of the what and the how, right? From a very young age, we ask the what questions. What are you gonna be when you grow up? What, what are you gonna major in in school? And then the rest of life is about the how. Like, how do you make more money? How do you climb the corporate ladder? How do you cook? How do you do laundry? How do you lose the weight? How do you go on the diet? Um, most of our lives are lived in the what and in the how. Christ, throughout his life, answers the deeper question, the question of why. Why is it every year, no matter what happens in our life, we choose to have hope still? Why is it that no matter how badly your heart has been broken, you choose to give it to someone again? Christ makes sense of all of the... The what and the how are great. The what and the how gave us uh, Traeger grills and iPhones with a billion songs in our pocket and climate-controlled seats in cars that you can, like, Make sure your backsides are always comfy. But, but there's the deeper questions that we all wrestle with. We're going to spend the next year wrestling through some of those and how Jesus approached the whys of life. Um, but uh, on this Christmas uh, Eve, um, I, the simple invitation is as you go back and as we scatter and we hang out with, hopefully you get to hang out with some people who love you and that you love. Hopefully you get the opportunity to hold someone that you love close Hopefully you have the opportunity to tell somebody that you love um, that you love them. Uh, hopefully you have the opportunity to, to laugh a lot, to eat too much food, all those things. Um, but but our, our hope, the simple invitation is as you do it all, that we would be reminded uh, that Jesus makes sense of it all um, and that we actually can trust him. And so with that, do join me in a word of prayer. Uh, gracious Lord, I, uh, I pray for all of us this morning who have walked through these doors. Um, and though the calendar says it's Christmas Eve, our hearts haven't made that turn yet. It's been a busy season. It's been a hard season. Lord, I pray that in this moment, through this story, Lord, that you would remind us once again um, that you came into the world. And no matter how ugly or evil the world looked at the time, you restored hope. And then, Lord, for all of us this morning that need to be reminded of that in our own lives, Lord, we pray that light would shine once again in the darkness. And so, Jesus, we thank you, we adore you, and we pray this in your name. And everybody said, amen. As we've said so many times before, we just want to say thanks for spending a little time with us. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, visit us on the web at www.southharbor.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sundays at 10 a.m., you can find our services streamed live on our Facebook page. And so once again, from all of us here at South Harbor Church and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.